We've got a zombie war on drugs now. You know, we've had 50 years, it's been a failure. We've now had our last year record overdose deaths in the United States. The level of violence in Latin America has been, in the last 20 years, there's been more than 2 million homicides in Latin America. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a Mexican-based journalist and the author of several books about the war on drugs, including this latest one, Blood, Gun, Money. Johan Grillo, welcome to Trigonometry. Great to be here. It's great to have you, man. We're so excited, as you know, about speaking with you. This is an issue we were really keen to talk about. Before we get into all that stuff, tell us a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are. You've had a very interesting journey through your life, haven't you? Well, I'm originally from, from the UK. Grew up uh, just near Brighton. Um, did a few, bit of a checkered uh, few things I did uh, <laughs> before I get into journalism. <laughs> I played in a punk band for a bit around the Brighton area. I was involved in pirate radio in London for a bit. And at 27, I went over to Mexico uh, to get into journalism. Originally with a bit of romantic ideas of like, you know, running around with grillers, fight, you know, fighting military dictatorships and stuff. Arrived in Mexico in the year 2000 um, when things had changed very much and very early on fell into covering drugs, the issue of drugs. I grew up um, in the southeast with a lot of drugs around then, a kind of bit of an opioid epidemic back then in the 80s. I knew about four teenagers or young men who died of heroin overdoses uh, around those times. So it kind of was very interesting to me connecting this issue of drug use, countries and communities that use a lot of drugs and countries which traffic um, and produce drugs. And was just fascinated at the beginning with this kind of glamour and the riddles of the Mexican drug cartels. So I was covering this a lot. Um, and while I was there covering this, it just blew up really from 2008. 2006, the government launched a military crackdown on cartels. 2008 was when the violence really exploded and it became like a, a weird hybrid armed conflict. I mean, insane things happening. I found myself in situations I couldn't have imagined. I found myself like in a morgue with 49 bodies that had all been decapitated, all had their hands and feet cut off. Found myself just dealing with a really crazy situation in the country, really bleeding, a lot of pain. Um, thought I couldn't get this out just in news reports. So I wrote a first book about this, which turned into a trilogy of books about this. Travelled around Latin America, looking at how this was playing out across the continent, Brazil, Venezuela, uh, Colombia, Honduras, Jamaica, up into the US itself, seeing this. Um, and I've been, I've been doing that since, really. Uh, you know, and I've now got more to doing some sort of TV series as well. Um, but still at it, writing away, living as a journalist. Mm. It's great to have you on to talk about all this stuff. And there's obviously so much we could talk about. But we always like to start with the very basics for anyone who's coming to this conversation for the first time, might not know much about it. What is the drug war, the war on drugs as we talk? What is it? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at drug trafficking in the modern sense, okay, it goes actually all the way back to 1914. You had a thing in the US called the Harrison's Narcotic Tax Act. And where they started taxing like some and, and, and regulating and, and prohibiting some opium and cocaine back then in 1914, 1915, it came into effect. Because prior to this, you could just buy it. Yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, there was some like local mm. measures came in. Mm. Um, but like very early on then from like 1915, when it started to really be like more national kind of drug prohibition or kind of regulation, you had a drug trade from Mexico to the United States. So there's a case you can look at going back to 1916 of cases of people trafficking drugs from Mexico to the United States. Initially, it was often Chinese immigrants to Mexico. Obviously, we had the, we had the Opium War. You know, us, us Brits uh, forced uh, the, the, the selling of opium in China. The habits continued. People moved to Mexico, started planting opium in Mexico and trafficking it to Chinese Americans. Some of the very first cases you can see in 1916. And right back then, there was... Uh, Mexican governors involved in the corruption. So you saw this kind of thing. Then the real war on drugs happens um, under Richard Nixon. Uh, the date is generally seen as being in 1971 when Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon had this press conference where he said um, public enemy number one of the United States is illegal drugs. And he had, you know, we're going to fight a war against them, a war on drugs. And 
he talked in very absolutist terms in those days. It was like, we will have an abolition of drugs from American life. Like there will be no heroin. Um, you know, middle-class parents, don't worry about your kids taking heroin. It's not gonna happen. There will be no heroin available. And that was 1971. Then you saw this escalation. Um, the drug trade in Colombia really kicking off, the violence in Colombia, you know, Escobar, cocaine, and, and drug habits in the United States really, really increasing, the, you know, drug consumption. Reagan amped it up. And then you've had this since then. Now, I, I say now, I argue now, that really we've got a zombie war on drugs now. Because that, you know, like, you know, like that what, you know, we've had 50 years, it's been a failure. We've now had our last year record overdose deaths in the United States. The level of violence in Latin America has been, in the last 20 years, there's been more than 2 million homicides in Latin America, more than 2 million murders. So the level of violence, now a lot of this, when you see it on the ground, is more actually like an armed conflict you're covering. I mean, these are heavily armed groups. Uh, military crackdowns by governments. Um, so you've seen a lot more death there than, than most of the Middle East. Um, and a large amount of this is related to cocaine trade. Not, not obviously not all the murders, but a large, that's a large factor in this violence there. Um, but there has, isn't really any more the impetus, the kind of real energy of people about let's try and stop drugs being in people's lives. They kind of accept and live with drugs now but we still have this kind of prohibition stumbling on elements and this kind of enforcement and so forth. And, Jan, it seems quite clear to me, and I think to most people, that the war on drugs simply doesn't work. Can you explain, number one, why it doesn't and the effects it has on these types of communities? Yeah, sure. So um, if you look at um, drugs, okay, let's take cocaine is, a, is, a, is one of the ones which is uh, interesting to look at. And so people make uh, kilo cocaine. First, it starts off with a bunch of leaves uh, from you know, coca leaves in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia. Colombia's the biggest producer. About $80 someone will get for like harvesting a bunch of leaves. Some like, you know, peasant farmer down in, you know, Campesino down in Colombia. Eventually it goes through two chemical processes. It becomes a kilo brick of cocaine, which they'll stamp, you know, with their, with their label on. And that sells depending on where in Colombia you buy it, if you buy it in the countryside, it's cheaper. And a bit, you know, it could be about $2,000 buying it for, for export. Bounces up to the US, you know, even the southern US wholesale, you're talking about $40,000. On the streets, $100,000 plus, plus you cut it up with a bunch of crap and then you make it double $200,000, $300,000. So the profits for that, are just insane. I mean, we know we're all in the in the shit business of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was about to say we're in the wrong business, my <laughs> yeah. friend. Yeah, and we're in that. Imagine any kind of business where you could like anyone who wants to go into business and think, if I flip, you know, most businesses you might see you know, have 20% markups. Imagine that you're saying, this is what drug dealers, it's the way they talk. Okay, you're gonna and I'm gonna put in, you know, 100 grand and I'm expecting to make half a million out of that, you know, at least. It's like, you know, you're making so much money, you know, or, or more. I mean, you look at the, think of the markups on that level. So you get such an incentive for anyone to do this. So what happened is it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do this. Um, you know, it's buying products, selling products, moving products. Um, so the most violent people are often gonna succeed in this. Um, or people using calculated violence, calculated corruption. So you end up in Mexico with psychopathic cartels in the way the stuff they do. I mean, the stuff, so you know, you cover there, you know, I've covered there is, is insane. I mean, like this mass, I've covered a mass grave with the remains of 298 people. And that was right next to a housing estate. And as they were uncovering it, that, that the reek of that death, the reek of the bodies was then reeking out. They, they were complaining about, well, we, we've got our kids playing in the gardens here. We've got the smell of death coming. I mean, that's what it leads to. But anyway, why it doesn't work is I think that m not m amount of incentive and you you arrest people, but it doesn't you know always, someone else will take their place, and you know Chapo himself will say this. You know he said this when 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 he was um, he gave a, a video um, statement and he said like I'm not the only one doing this. There's those people involved in drug trafficking, and, and that's true. So anyone's going to take their place. All the people keep on taking their place, can keep on doing it, and unless you know, and, and the governments in the West are not prepared for like a really authoritarian crackdown that could stop it. 
Like if it was a really authoritarian crackdown, like saying anybody we see with drugs, we're going to execute right away and cut your head off, <laughs> then that might stop it. But just saying we're going to lock people up in prison, you know, you're always going to find more people who are willing to traffic drugs. Mm. Uh uh, the one thing that I always struggle, because, you know, we talk to politicians on the show sometimes or journalists or people, messengers who are quite influential in government or elsewhere. The one thing I always f struggle to get people to understand is why this matters here. Why Why should anyone care about this? Yeah. yeah. I think two two reasons. I mean, one, the first reason, which might be hard to convince people, but, you know, you should care about what you're connected to. One of the things about drugs and I find fascinating is, you know, you could, somebody, you could be, somebody could be snorting a line of cocaine in a toilet in, in London. And that has a journey. That money you spent on that, that gram, some of that money is going to reach these cartels. So you actually got a responsibility for caring about where that goes. Some of that money goes to paying a hitman who's carrying out those massacres, who's cutting up those bodies, who's leaving, like, you know, kids disappeared and a bunch of brutal stuff. And it's not just bad guys being taken out with this. A lot of innocent people have, have died in this. So one, you should care, but that's hard. You know, it's quite a hard sell. Mm, right. I, I mean, mean yeah. our phones are made in pretty yeah, much yeah. the same way. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, it's quite yeah, a hard sell. Gonna... People say, like, well, you know, should you try another campaign? And some people go, don't take cocaine because it goes, you know, people, in, you know, like in some pub and someone's drunk and someone comes offering, it's hard to kind of think. Of. But the other thing is, what I've seen over the last 20 years in Latin America and Mexico is like a new type of armed conflict, a new type of violence. And you see how this can play out in the 21st century and how bad, what this can mean for society. It's totally changed the way I think. I grew up here in the UK. I would not like police, you know, as a teenager, as a punk teenager. <laughs> I'd be like anti-police and stuff. Mm. Um, now you see how horrific crime can be how this can affect a society, what that means in terms of quality of life, standard of life for people when, you know, somebody's daughter is disappeared and then brutally raped and murdered, when, you know, you have a, a mother who's a school teacher who describes her 18-year-old son who's a philosophy student being taken away by an armed group from her house and just disappeared and she's going around morgues trying to find his only sign of him. Um, these kind of things... Now, I know we're a long way from that now, but I do see in this country and in Europe, society getting more fragmented, um, you know, like these kind of divisions and stuff. And we shouldn't take for granted because we've had a fairly non-violent society for, for many years, it's always going to be the case. Because historically, we're just as violent in Europe or, you know, as anywhere else. So what what is the solution to the war on drugs? It looks like the authority we're not going to do a complete like a like they've got in the Philippines where mm. someone who's found with a bag of coke essentially gets executed. This crackdown doesn't work. So what is the solution? I think I mean I uh, advocate for drug policy reform. You know use is that phrase. I mean like drug policy because legalization is I mean it it's really it's more complicated than just the word legalization. Because actually, when you get you know into drug policy, you realise it's not just a button you press and it all stops. Um, you actually have to get into the like nitty and gritty of drug policy and stuff. So drug policy reform, I, I see as, as as representing saying the current policies don't work. We have to reform and reshape this and look for ways. Now, part of that means uh, elements of legalisation. So I'm in, in favour of legalising marijuana. I think the UK is behind it. I think the UK should, should legalise marijuana. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, this is the reasons of why should somebody be be arrested? Why should there be, you know, gangs making money from selling weed, which is then an incentive and then drives violence and all kinds of stuff. Um, still today, um, you know, you have these really violent cartels in Mexico. Still, you now it's a lot less now because of legalisation in the States, but they're still moving some some weed now. You still have um, the most, you know, the most violent players growing a bunch of marijuana, trafficking it to the United States. Um, in Baltimore, there's still people selling weed on the street corners there and people getting shot over that. So legalising marijuana, and then we have to get into a very difficult discussion about what we do with heroin, mm. cocaine, crystal meth, um, fentanyl, which is other things. It's a difficult discussion. I don't know this, the, the answers. One thing I do think we need to look at we, we can agree on is we need to really take rehab very seriously, um, particularly in the US, but in the UK as well. 
Um, we are very, say, fragmented societies. I mean, why in the US is there so much drug addiction? Why are people hurting so much? And, and according to the American Medical Association, only 10% of people who need addicts who need rehab are getting it. So you've got 90%, you've got a huge amount of work just to try and offer people the help they need. If, and, and for every addict you get off heroin, that's a lot of heroin they buy because addicts are buying a lot all the time. Now, I do realise it gets into difficult things about cocaine, you know, how, you know, how we try and move on, on cocaine, on heroin, on crystal meth, but we've got to start having a conversation about this. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting as well when, what people assume when you start seeking practical solutions to this, because from my perspective, I've never tried cocaine and I, I don't want to. I've never did, done any hard drugs. It's not, no, something, that, not something that appeals to me because I've got morals, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but seriously, though, but I also think you need to have a practical approach, right? And whatever we're doing now is just not working. And one of the ways you see that is what's been happening in Mexico, which you've been covering for a long time. I mean, from what I understand, and correct me on this, Mexico is essentially not run by any, is run by the cartels. Most of the money that's made in Mexico is in some way connected to the drug trade. Is that broadly accurate? That's that's a probably a bit of an overstatement. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, the situation is is horrific, and at, and at a local level, that's true. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, so the, so the cartel, we don't know the exact amount of money. It's very you know because it's, it's a black market. Yeah. But you know, the estimates it could be say thirty billion dollars of money from trafficking drugs to the United States. Now Mexico is actually a trillion dollar economy. You know, Mexico is not a poor country; it's a mid-income country with a, with rich people and poor people in, in, in the middle. But that thirty billion then goes; it's very concentrated in certain communities. So you have certain areas, certain cities, certain neighborhoods, certain villages where drugs, where drug money is the biggest thing. But then that money helps pollute and corrupt the entire system and, and a breakdown. And there's a level, one time I was in a town on the border and um, we were, the cartel, local cartel was unha unhappy we were there. Um, the word was going to local, they were telling local journalists, you know, we're unhappy about journalists you snooping around being here. So eventually we had a, a talk with the cartel, with a cartel representative, a cartel guy from there who came to our hotel with AK-47s in the back of his car. Um, first thing we don't want you filming here, blah blah. And we actually talked to him, and and you know, kind of leveled stuff out. And said, oh yeah, you can leave. Oh, yeah, you'll, be, you'll be fine. Don't worry. And he said, if you have any problems with the police, you call me. So that shows who runs the local police force. Right. Mm. I mean, and it's that's that's the level of insanity. I mean, you literally see cops, um, seen cops who have you know actually carrying cocaine in their car, which they're running for the cartel, who have like cartel issued. Um, guns. Um, the level, even more so, there was you know a case in Michoacan of a police officer a few years ago. His nickname was Tyson, after the boxer kind of guy, and he was caught and gave a forced confession uh, for the federal government. But in that confession, he was describing not only working for the cartel, not only murdering people for the cartel, um, but being a ranking cartel member and training young cartel affiliates how to like butcher victims, how to cut off limbs. So that's a level, when you have police force, police forces doing that, imagine what law enforcement's like in those areas mm. um, and how bad it is. Now in terms of, you know, you know, as you get into Mexico, a concept of like narco state, or you know, has it become a narco state at that point? And then right. you've got presidents. I mean, right now, a guy who was the um, former um, public security secretary, you know, he was the, really one of the leading figures in the war on drugs. I, I'd interviewed him before, um, kind of guy with a big, big kind of square jaw, kind of talked a good game. Um, he's currently in prison in the United States on drug trafficking charges. So like, that's the level of corruption. Now you say it's a narco state, but then it gets more complicated because at the same time, you know, you say, well, the entire state is just Ill illegitimate now. It's all drug traffickers, but then it gets more complicated because then you have, okay, you still have doctors who are working very, very hard fighting COVID, you still have teachers who are working hard, trying to, you know, trying to teach kids, you still have people running electricity, collecting rubbish, all of these things the state is doing more functionally. It's not like we're, say, an area where the Islamic State controls, mm. or in Latin America, the Sendero Luminoso, the, the, the shining path in Peru, where they control the whole area, and they're very interested in changing the way people think and like changing, you know, turning them into 
you know, into Maoist communists or, or Islamic state into like Islamists, extreme Islamists. The drug cartel control an area. They don't really care what the school's doing. Um, what they care about is controlling the police force, controlling the rackets. But they've got the drugs, but they're also into extortion, kidnapping, prostitution, stealing oil, um, illegal mining and a whole bunch of other things. So you see a real breakdown, a kind of like a warlordism. I think a lot of the world is suffering this kind of challenge to authority as well. Hey Francis, do you want to learn another language? No mate, I'm English. If foreigners can't understand me, I just shout at them. Think about it, you could learn how to say penalties in Italian. Leave it. But if you do want to learn another language because maybe you want to have new experiences, live in another country, or maybe you just want to open your mind. My mind's open enough. If I open it up any further, my brain's gonna hurt. This is true. But Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. They design their courses with practical real-world conversations in mind. Sentences you'll use in normal, everyday life. Sentences like Oi Pedro, dos cervezas por favor. Thank you, Francis. And Babel's courses have been proven to be scientific. And Babel's courses have been proven to be scientifically effective across multiple studies. Their 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. It's available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. They've also got their own podcast, so you can brush up on your French and Spanish on the go. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. And before you know it, tú vas a poder hablar español absolutamente perfecto. No, I mean Gary. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with our promo code, which is, of course, Trigger. Go to uk.babbel.com slash play and use promo code Trigger for an extra six months free. That's uk.babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L dot C-O-M forward slash play promo code trigger. And Jan, is it, do they have that kind of relationship that Escobar had with the Colombian people whereby the Colombian people loved him because, you know, he gave them schools, he provided them resources, he helped a very, very poor people? Or is it far more oppressive than that? So it's a very mixed bag. And I've been up to the village where El Chapo's from, um, met his his mother, interviewed his mother, sat through a three-hour evangelical service, a Christian <laughs> service. His mum's an evangelical Christian in a church that he built. Um, he built a paved road in that town. And, and, you know, it's a small town. He's obviously very, very popular there. It's all, you know, you know in that area. Um, you know, everyone's into the cartel. Um, and they, they talk about them in these communities. They talk about them. They call them valientes or brave ones. Uh, and they look up to them. But then also you get a lot of people who see, well, you know, these people are like demons. These people have, um, you know, they, you know, a lot of, there's a big movement in Mexico, particularly of mothers whose children, um, sons and daughters, have been murdered um, in, in violence there, often by cartel, by armed groups, or by the corrupt police working with the cartels, or by the soldiers fighting the cartels, or the Marines, something that's just like, you know, sort of mayhem out there. Um, and they're like going around trying to find, um, you know, the, the bodies of, the, of their loved ones. And there's one woman who, who I interviewed in, in the state of Veracruz who was actually helped find that biggest grave I mentioned earlier of 298 bodies. She helped find it looking for her son. After four years of looking for her son, she found that mass grave. Um, and after two more years, the DNA of one of the bodies was traced to her son. So she had that closure. Um, so you've got this, this level of mass disappearances. Now it gets complicated because it's mixed with cartels, mixed with the corrupt government. So people are like, you know, what's actually who are we fighting with, the cartels or the police? Because they're like conspiring together. Um, but yeah, you've got that kind of mixed thing. But you still have, you know, the people look up to cartels as well. And it's, you know, um, during the COVID, they were handing out bags of goodies, you know, the beginning of COVID, when all the lockdown happened, they were handing out these you know, plastic bags of goodies, of rice and eggs. And, and good good products and you know getting their loyalty from people um, at the same time. And we seem to have seen, particularly in Mexico, an intensification that you referred to since I think two thousand six was it? Yeah, I think the two thousand yeah two thousand six two thousand eight. So, yeah, so there was a real big crackdown under President Calderon. Hmm. Uh, 
you would have thought that the, the government of a pretty big country with support from the United States at the time as well, cracking down using the military, using full the full force of the state to deal with this would have had a positive impact on dealing with it. And yet what we've seen seems to have been the opposite. How, yeah. how has that happened? Sure, I think, I think two big reasons. Um, one is that a lot of the military are corrupt. So, In fact, one of the cartel was actually a special forces yeah, unit, of, yeah. wasn't it? The, the Zetas. The, the Zetas. Yeah. And, I, and I've interviewed one of the guys who was a military guy and was in, in that from early on. So, yeah, you, you had these um, soldiers, like hardcore soldiers, who then flipped to the cartel. and So that's the equivalent of, like, the SAS yeah. flipping to become a, a drug trafficking organization. Yeah, yeah. Initially, they were the enforcement arm, and then yeah. they formed their own cartel. And, they, and they, they really, you could say, they were the ones who militarized the conflict. Right. Because when it, um, and I was covering this, first covering this as a young journalist working for the Houston Chronicle in the States. And, I, and as this was kind of playing out and you saw the violence was really upped. It used to be like gang bangers, as they say in the, you know, the US guys. In fact, it was Ameri they'd have some of these American, like Mexican-American gang bangers would come over and be hired by the cartels before. Guys with shaved heads, tattoos, like pistols, like, you know, shooting and stuff. And then the setters were like, no, no, you know, we're going to do violence a different way. We're, we're like AK-47s, uh, bullet, bulletproof jackets, metal helmets, radios, organising. So one of these early things I covered, they, there was a bunch of these gang members were sent to fight them uh, and they killed them all, piled them up, their borders up in a house and put a message saying, you know, send us some, some more pendejos like these so we can kill them. Uh, like, you know, pendejos meaning, you know, send us some yeah. more idiots like mm. these so we can kill them. But also the military carried on being corrupt. You know, there was, you know, recently a case of a general um, who in the, was arrested in the United States, flew into the United States, was arrested, event, you know, charged on drug trafficking. They dropped the charge and sent him back to Mexico. I covered a trial of two, court martial of two generals who were convicted on drug trafficking. So there's no, you know, it's not a big secret. It's, you know, the, the, the military themselves can be corrupt. They can be very, very violent. But also, if you look at this from a street to a strategic point of view, and I think the government underestimated the threat there was in Mexico in 2006 when it launched the crackdown. It's not like one cartel in Mexico, it's loads of cartels all over the country. So you start sending in the military to one place and fighting a cartel, and then it starts kicking off somewhere else. Then the cartels start fighting back. So like, as well, so they're fighting the military, which might be even allied to a different cartel, and they start ambushing soldiers, ambushing police, kidnapping police, leaving the bodies of police, you know, kidnapping Marines. Uh, there was one case where some Marines were tricked by some local police who were affiliated to the, to the, to the Setas cartel, that, that same cartel, in, into going to a bar without their weapons, were kidnapped and tortured and murdered on video. So suddenly they're like, you know, you're cracking down on us, we're gonna use violence to press you to back off. So you suddenly started having more of a confident escalation of the conflict, so now you've got I mean, there was, a, there was a situation in 2019 when the, some members of the police and the military attempted to arrest a son of El Chapo in Culiacan. And according to a military account of this, 700 to 800 gunmen took to the streets, cartel gunmen, wow. to, to, to put pressure to, to, to liberate him against 350 soldiers. They eventually, that day, under orders from the government, and the military themselves felt betrayed, but the government said he'd let him go um, because people were terrified they were just going to start massacring everyone. They were out on the streets. They were using 50 cows, firing. So, again, I mean, it looks like, it looks like an armed conflict. It looks like... So, basically, to put that in context, I just, like, a lot of people in the West, I don't think, understand what we're yeah. talking about. That's the equivalent of a major drug dealer's son, let's say, in London or in yeah, Liverpool yeah. or in New York yeah. or in Baltimore, <laughs> yeah. being arrested... Yeah. Then nearly a thousand people armed with military grade weapons yep. are on the streets, and the government is like, "Oh, you know what? To avoid further violence, yeah. we're going to let mm. them go." Yeah, exactly. That's, That's what happened. Exactly, exactly what happened. Yeah, very well put. Um, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. This is a good way. It's a good to try and get that through to people when you, because people do see this as being some like place you can't really relate to. Yeah. To try and say, imagine this stuff happening in in in, in England or whatever, or in in the US, um, and you know, imagine you know there being you know, mass graves in fields next to an estate in Coventry or something. Mm. Yeah. And so they start digging up and found like, you know, 200 bodies there. Um, what that means for society when that happens. But isn't there also a fundamental hypocrisy going in that we've got America, 
you know, the UK lecturing, you know, about drugs, the evil of drugs. Yet they did a, a cocaine swab test in the toilet of the House of Parliament. It came out positive. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's complete hypocrisy. That's what we have to talk about. This. And, and so I don't, I don't know, you know, can we legalise cocaine? I don't know the solution to that. Um, often when I do talks about this, I'll ask people, say, who's in favour of legalising marijuana? And in most places I go, a majority will put their hands up. I say, who, who's in, who's in favour of legalising cocaine? Just to get the reaction from people. Mm. And so I don't know totally the answer to this. Um, but you often get a few people now kind of, uh, you know, can, what can we do with cocaine? I mean, cocaine is not as lethal as heroin um, uh, or crystal meth. Mm -hmm. Um, but can you legalise it? Could there be a place, you know, could you go to an off-licence and also go and say, I'll have, you know, a, a six-pack of lager and a couple of grams of you know, Colombia's finest or, or, or not? I don't know. Depends I don't. if you're in Liverpool, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But right, yeah, but right now it's happening anyway. So right now the, the, the fact is you go to the pub and there's a, there's a guy who's, who's selling cocaine. It's going to shit and it's cut up with crap. Yeah. Mm. So you've got more danger as well of people having, you know, like wherever it's, you know, you know stuff they could have put with it. And in Mexico, there's people selling. I'm, um, you know, you know, just in a town we're working, and you know, it was a, a closing of a political event. In fact, and there was a, a van on the side, and there was people just serving up cocaine there. I've been in, in the favelas in Brazil, on a table just selling. You know, oh yeah, what do you want? Cocaine. They got like little bags mm. with the numbers there: cocaine, crack, and the guys are openly there with, with you know, with guns with rocket launchers on and stuff, with uh, grenade launchers as well, grenade launchers on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's happening anyway. The drug trade is happening anyway. We're not stopping it. So, yeah, we have to try and think about a, a better way out of this. And this is a question I think many people probably don't uh, understand the answer to, and I, to some extent, don't. Am I right in thinking that the reason Mexico is such a such a violent place because of drugs is because it's the, it's the trafficking point to the United States, which is the biggest market for illegal drugs in the world? Why are all these drugs made in Latin America? Why are they produced there? Yeah. So, so yeah, I was exactly right. I mean, the United States is the biggest uh, drug consumption in the world by far. Um, again, we don't know the real numbers, um, but there's estimates put out by the the Rand Corporation. They have like, um, uh, it's, it's, they put out commissioned by the White House. It's called What Americans Spend on Illegal Drugs. It's estimates about 150 billion dollars every year that Americans are spending on illegal drugs. So, so imagine that you're next door in Mexico. You're the biggest providers for this. Um, cocaine has only co so coca is originally from the Andes area that's yeah. the, traditionally where the plant's mm -hmm. from you still have groups in Colombia more so in Bolivia using indigenous communities using the plants they just chew it as like like mm. we take coffee or something they right? chew it there's ceremonies as well there's ceremonies used with uh, I went up to see the coca fields in, in Colombia in a, uh, an area there and I went up with this one indigenous group and it was interesting because this group was had um, a bunch of ex-FARC. They had various paramilitaries there. And they had this indigenous group who took me up to, to see it. And they simply, they, they didn't have guns. They had this staff. And the, their thing was if they were ever like challenged, they would like raise this staff and then loads of them come out and like... So it was, <laughs> it was actually good security. It's kind of like, you know... Yeah, sounds like something out of Avatar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but, but no, but they, 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 they were talking about they had these... They have, they're actually allowed some of them to grow coca for, you know, even in, in Colombia... Then, so you, you know, so, so the plant's originally from there historically, and it hasn't taken up. There was an effort a few years ago to try and produce cocaine in Nigeria, and it didn't really take off. There's been little efforts, even within, within like, there's been little efforts of like Guatemala, Mexico to make cocaine, yeah. but really it's the Andes, you know, the, 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 the climate, the, the conditions for growing coca leaves. Um, heroin can be made in a lot of countries. Um, but Mexico's got good conditions and it's right, you know, right next to the United States and same with marijuana. Uh, and now with the synthetic drug, so crystal meth, fentanyl, so now they make fentanyl in Mexico or they're bringing fentanyl and mix it up with heroin. Uh, what is fentanyl, by the way, Yo? Yeah, fentanyl is, um, so, so you've got the big class of drugs called opioids or opiates, mm. um, which are opium-based things, which are like um, downers. People say they kind of bring you down very good painkillers and um, that's the biggest real addiction problem in the united states is really these opiates are the are the, the the biggest really for, for deaths because the level between what you can take and your body can survive with an overdose is much closer than with cocaine or some other drugs or, or marijuana i mean it's pretty so it's very easy to od on it very easy to od on it 
Um, and nowadays you've got, I mean, you've had through the pharmaceutical industry and you've got a lot of corruption really in the United States of people prescribing um, opiates. I mean, it, it's been going for a long time. I mean, I, I've got friends here in the UK who got addicted to heroin after going into hospital and being given, you know, down as then as going back to the 80s. But in the US, there was like big pushing from the drug companies to like, yeah, prescribe them, um, you know, like prescribe them opiates, prescribe them, you know, make money out of this, you know, yeah. and a lot of people making money and then people are hooked and then they're buying it illegally. So then the cartels start also make, you know, getting these formulas, making it, going to countries, buying precursors, making it themselves. So now there's a big amount of money you can make. You don't need to be in the mountains growing opium leaves or coca leaves. You just got a lab somewhere, bring in some precursors, um, you know, you know, you know, bribe customs or like sneak them through, um, and this in a lab right by the border or in any place, and be making making these uh, opiates or crystal meth as well. It, it seems to me that you know drugs are so prevalent in America and the UK. And look, this is me with my tinfoil hat. Please disavow me of this mm. idea. Are there not people really high up who have got their fingers in this pie? Because I just think to myself, it can't be so prevalent and people up top know what's going on or don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Like, you know, sometimes I'll try and put, you know, write op-eds and try and be like, end the war on drugs, um, do this, you know, can... And just trying to push for real solutions because I get yeah. very frustrated now. I feel like politics is broken yeah. and I feel this is something we can fix. You know, a lot of things we can't fix, you know, we're not going to be able to find common ground on, but this is something we should be able to fix. It's like wrong and can't we find a better way? It's like, why are they not doing it? You know, so I try and put forward optimistic things, whoever it is, Biden administration, you know, Boris Johnson, anything, you know, just show, move forward in this policy. And everyone says, you know, then people be like, ah, you're so naive. You know, there's a bunch of people making a big money on this. They want this kind of disorder. I don't know. I mean, my dad used to say um, you have conspiracy theory and you have the cock-up theory. Mm -hmm. And often I will first look at the cock-up theory. Yeah. Often find you, but then also you have the cocked-up conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> so you have like stuff that can be like, you know, are there interests there of people? I mean, certainly people, um, you have got bureaucracies there. So you've got like the DEA, couple of billion dollars budget every year. They've got an incentive to keep that budget, to keep it. They've got asset seizure. You know, they're seizing, you know, drug uh, traffickers can, the, the biggest um, cash bust in the world ever was in Mexico, 205, $207 million in cash in a house in Mexico from a Chinese guy actually bringing precursors for crystal meth. That money is then asset seized by the Mexican government. They then have $207 million. Um, you know, the US, you know, seize houses of people and stuff and then use that for... So yeah, there are interests there and people selling guns um, to drug traffickers, uh, people selling guns to gangs, that's a business. Uh, banks, HSBC was caught, yes. um, big money laundering case there. Um, you've got money coming in. You know, you're like, and I knew, I, I talked to a guy, a guy contacted me who was selling expensive watches to drug traffickers um, in Colombia. He was a Colombian guy based in Miami, but he was going to, to Europe and, and he was selling, like, he would go into Colombia with, like, I mean, we're talking, you know, really expensive watches, $100,000 a piece. Go with a few of them, go off to these, like, ranch of drug traffickers, sell them a few, a few of these watches. The watch companies are happy with that. You know, he was their best seller. You know, who can you find with that kind of money to buy, to buy watches? So a lot of people make money out of this, uh, and there could be interests. But I think also there's a lot of just broken politics, and we can't fix, you know... Why can we not fix anything more? And why are politicians... Um, now, this is actually also linked to the issue of refugees, which is another reason, actually, your question about why we should care. Yeah. Right, you know, people flee violence in Latin America and then come to the United States. People flee violence in Africa and, you know, come to Europe. It's different sources, different reasons there, but one of the reasons they're driving this... So people arrive, a lot of them have got asylum claims that are very strong, saying... You know, they threaten to kill my entire family. They're working with the police. If I go back, they're going to murder me. Um, that's driving people. And so, you know, you have to care because if, you know, countries are in, in chaos, it affects you. But then you get like, um, you know, so Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez um, tweet, I know America was um, involved in supporting governments in Latin America, um, in, in Central America in the 80s. 
But how about right now? How about what's happening right now and how you can solve these practical things? But I think a lot of politics is more about like posturing than actually saying any kind of pragmatic solution to these kind of problems. Mm. That's what I find really odd about this whole thing, Jan, because it's like many of the issues that we talk about, uh, uh, you know you know us, you watch the show, we speak to people on the right and the left, we try yeah. and have that balanced discussion. And uh, the things that you just mentioned, the stuff that people in America, let's say, on the right care about, the border, mm. the border security, what they call... If you've got a continent of people who are being murdered and raped and disappeared and whatever, a lot of them are going to want to leave that and come to the United States. So if you fix this issue, you're going to solve that problem to to a very significant extent. Uh, Likewise, in the UK, I mean, one of the things we've been talking about a lot recently is racial disparities, over-policing of certain communities, etc. And a lot of that is, in my opinion, down to the fact that there's 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 a lot of people being criminalized for something that they didn't they oughtn't be criminalized for. But if you create the opportunity to make as much money as you're saying for people who don't have many other options, that's what's going to happen. Then the police have to come in because of the violence, and then you know the 17 year old with a bag of weed in his pocket is being treated in a very different way to somebody who's got the same bag of weed at Oxford University, right? So there's so there's so many things that can be fixed by addressing this issue. Why do you think that, first of all, politics, you've, you've alluded to some of it, mm. but also just, you know, public sentiment isn't necessarily on the side of, of what we're talking about here. I mean, I, I see a massive switch on the drug issue over the last few years. I remember in 2010, I was on Charlie Rose show before his demise (laughs) (laughs) but like on the charlie rose show and we were having a discussion then and charlie rose asked about uh drug legalization legalization and it was sorry 2012 he asked about drug legalization and one of the other guests in our journey said oh it's a non-starter um and this was a sentiment i heard a lot in older journalists you know drug drug legalization is a non-starter you mentioned it's just not going to happen that year in 2012 they legalized cannabis first of all in Washington State and Colorado, and then it's you know it's been spreading across legalized recreational marijuana. So that's obviously on the table now. Um, so you have seen, and you've seen like you know just you know this last election there was a whole bunch of these um, um, other um, votes in the United States and Mississippi, um, you know by a big percentage uh, approved legalizing um, medical marijuana. So you've seen a big change in this. I mean, you go back to 30 years, you know, 30 years or just 20 years, that wouldn't have happened. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Well, if you do, then EasyDNS are the company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, deplatform attacks or overzealous government agencies. He knows a bit about that. So will you in a second. Easy DNS have rock-solid network infrastructure and incredible customer support. They're in your corner no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You'd know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Move your domains and websites over to Easy DNS right now. All you've got to do is head over to easydns.com forward slash triggered and use our promo code, which is, of course, triggered as well, and you will get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, that tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. So there has been a big swing in public opinion on this issue. Uh, I haven't seen, I'm not sure exactly what the, the surveys are now in the, in the UK, if, you know, how many people will be in favour of legalising marijuana here for a start. Um, but I think there is a certain move with with politicians but I do think that politics has become very very broken uh, and that and they're not looking at like solving practical issues a lot of the it's not like sitting down and saying I think the spirit that's lasted for a long time in the US in Europe of we can solve things we can solve problems we've lost a lot of that and and it's people now just like posturing showing off their own kind of social media followers attacking the opposition, mm. not really saying how can we actually come together and find a real solution to this problem. Do you not get frustrated about this? I mean, you must be, surely. You're covering this stuff. Just absolute horror. 
yeah. for, for what, two decades now? Yeah, or yeah. as long as you've been? Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing that you're giving people information about what's going on. You talk about two million people being murdered yeah. in Latin America. And no one seems to care. <laughs> yeah, it happened absolutely. I mean, like, uh, um, it's, I mean, it's been a crazy journey. Yeah. Um, and, and as well as, you know, it, the, some of the things that really strike with me, I spent a lot of time interviewing cartel members, gangsters, criminals. So it's spending a lot of time with, with, with people who are like serial murderers. Um, now, I, as a journalist, feel I've got, you know, it's important to talk to these people um, to try and understand who they are, you know, what they're going through. Some of them are evil or commit evil acts. Some of them you can, you know, I can get on or, you know, one can get on okay with them. Um, you can find they've got nice sides to them. Um, this one guy, I went out drinking in a nightclub with him. I didn't really know quite how deep he was in beforehand. You know, we did a big bucket of beer, kind of nice, you know, seemed like a nice guy. When we sat down and, you know, did an interview with him uh, later and he was describing butchering an entire family. He was describing decapitating people while they're still alive, which would be in the contracts. Um, you know, how they have that there, they decapitate them and, you know, how their kind of bodies are reacting to that. Um, later on, he, he was murdered. So you see this, um, this stuff and just repeating, 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 just keeps on going. Um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of think I had a certain naivety when I went into this. And then I look back and read my first book that I wrote 10 years ago. I had this kind of optimism, oh, this, we can solve this, this can be changed. When I talk to a lot of people living in these areas, they don't have that optimism. Their, their idea is this is the way it is. There's violence. Um, and I'm going to try and make the best of this for myself. Um, they don't, they're not thinking, oh, how, you know, how can we change and move this situation? It is frustrating, and I think we're losing, um, I think a lot of the gains we've made, I mean, you think there's got to be a way to stop this. You know, if, if we can, you know, if humans can put man on the moon, um, all of the things that, that we can do, we can create nuclear bombs, how can we have, you know, in Latin America right now and in some US cities, murder rates which are like 50 times London. So if you think Linda, London's bad at stabbing, imagine that times 50. What that means when everybody knows several people who have been murdered. Um, what that means in terms of you don't want your kid out by themselves ever because you're just scared that something could happen. Um, that you've constantly got that edge um, on it, and we can't we can't stop that stuff. And even you compare it to like medieval London, it's the murder rates right now in Latin America cities are, are five times, six times the rates that were in medieval London. So it's not like it's this natural state of things that there should be this level of violence. Don't you think that part of the problem as well is that we conflate drug taking with morality? Mm. So you know that if you take drugs, you ultimately become immoral, and if you're immoral, then you should be punished. When it's been proven time and time again that you know, as long as there's going to be human beings, they're going to be taking drugs. We've taken drugs since time immemorial. Yeah, we have taken uh, drugs since time immemorial. I think there's there's differences in the drug taking um, now compared to some of like you know drug taking before. I mean, things like the fact uh, you know there was um, we drink um, you know alcohol now much stronger alcohol than we used to, people used to drink. Mm -hmm. You know, it's be like well, a weaker beer or whatever. And now it's like or a weaker wine. And now it's like now we're doing mezcal and and, and, and vodka. <laughs> And that kind of thing, um, you know. Lot, we've taken. You know, people took, um, say, magic mushrooms um, in, you know, in like druids took them, or people took them in like ceremonies before. But now people are just doing like lines of coke and and, and, and just taking drugs at kind of parties, and people are kind of. So I, I think I think there's issues. I think there's quite big issues about the nature of modern society. Mm. I think the nature of mental health yeah. in modern society, and and the way that like I mean most. People who become bad drug addicts have got problems, other problems. Not just, it's not like someone's super happy, everything's going great in their lives, and they become like a bad drug addict. Some people take drugs recreationally. They go out, they get drunk, they take a few lines, and that's it. They can leave it and they can carry on. Some of them are like in parliament or, in, you know, or like <laughs> selling stocks or whatever. Um, other people, you know, they, 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 they start taking them, you know, and then they've got a real big problem with this. And then they, then they become like a bad addict, and then people die of overdose and stuff. So we've, I think we've got to look at these, and I think this gets into bigger issues, and it's, it's kind of hard to solve, but about, I think, about, about people, about separation, about um, loneliness, and about all of these things we have to kind of address as well.
Yeah, it's a really good point. I I wouldn't want this intimacy to come off as like us going, oh yeah, everyone should be taking drugs and there's yeah. nothing wrong with it at all yeah. because we know that there's a lot of problems that come mm. with that. Uh, but I, I guess there's been a lot of set, written about now that we know that the reason people take drugs often is to do with trauma, it's to do with suffering some kind of pain, it's to deal with difficulty. Uh, and yeah, we've said, okay, you can take alcohol and drink yourself to death and that's mm. okay, but you can't take this other stuff. That, that to me is, is really the issue. Uh, but um, you mentioned the AOC and the conversation around mm. America's past behavior in Latin America. Yeah. Uh, what has been the West's role in, in the war on drugs and the violence that you talk about in Latin America? Has the West helped? Uh, has the West made it worse? Like what has been the impact of, of the attempts to intervene in one way or another? Yeah, sure. So historically, when you go back to Richard Nixon um, before, then the US really pushed this. So at the beginning, like the US pushed um, crop spraying in Mexico. It's going back to the 1970s and started saying, you've got, you've got to like use, you know, we'll give you, and they said, we'll give you military helicopters and you spray crops. And so the military were then empowered and getting money to be cracking down on drug production, which then just shifted. So they actually began in Sinaloa. They ran them out of Sinaloa. They went to the, the second city, Guadalajara, just grew in, grew in size. Um, crop spraying in Colombia, which they never, no, never wiped out the, the cocaine trade. You know, you just spray crops, spray, spray, spray. It's whack-a-mole. You know, you're going bang, 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 and it's just all this springing up all the time. So the US, I mean, the US was pressuring as a policy. So you just have a thing called certification, where they'd certify countries for how much they were cracking down on drugs, supposedly. They had this idea this would work and this would stop drug trafficking and it failed. Um, so the US, you know, did this and pushed this for a long time. Um, now, it, I say, now it's kind of a zombie war on drugs. Now it doesn't, you know, now this thing's just like carrying on moving. The drug trade is there. There's billions and billions of dollars in it. People just carry on doing it. You've also got, um, which my third book looks at, the, the traffic of firearms. Mm. So now the United States has the biggest firearms market in the world by far. The last count or estimate was 393 million guns in civilian hands, which is more than the next 25 countries combined. From that, you have a, like a legal firearms market. You have a parallel black market. From this parallel black market, you have guns flowing down, well, moving around to the gangs in the United States, you know, all around the US, but also flowing down to Mexico. Um, the last 12 years, you've seen more than 160,000 firearms taken from cartels in Mexico and definitively traced to US gun shops and gun stores. The real numbers were believed to be more than 200,000 guns every year going down there. So this is trafficking, historic case of trafficking to a heavy armed conflict, which again is why I think, I mean, are, are Americans and some of these politicians, they, they not know about that. Um, some of these politicians who are talking in, you know, in Congress, they not know about these things or are they not interested in, in, in real solutions to this stuff right now? Well, there was a scandal, wasn't there? It was Operation Fast and Furious? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tell yeah. everybody a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, so Fast and Furious was an operation by the American gun police called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives in 2009, 2010, it blew open and 2011, well, 2011, it really came out to the public. Um, and what it was, was that the ATF agents were watching people, cartel affiliates, buy guns and traffic them to the cartels. The plan was, we're gonna watch them. They tried to also get some chips in the guns so they could trace them. Um, and we can build up a big conspiracy case and kind of bring down the whole racket. They ended up watching 2,000 guns be trafficked to, the, to Mexico. One of them was found in the last safe house of El Chapo. Some of them got then bounced down to Colombia. And then one of them was later used to murder a, an American border patrol agent in the United States, um, which then when it, it really blew up. Um, and they just, just, you know, so they were like basically complicit in this. Um, there was one guy who walked in the shop, spent half a million dollars on guns. And they were just watching him do it. Um, there was, you know, it was a kind of crazy, crazy scheme. Now, this cut, you know, the, the politics of this cuts different ways. And I'm trying to like, you know, bring this, you know, you know, left wing, right wing, whatever. I think on the drugs issue, a lot of left and right can really come together on this issue. Mm. Um, I think we got, I think on the actual issue of guns themselves, it's more divisive in the United States. Yeah. But this issue actually was owned by conservatives because it happened under Obama. 
under Attorney General Eric Holder. And so it became like, this is what the Obama administration has done and a kind of conspiracy they want to do this to, to kind of take away our guns. In Mexico, it was more of a conspiracy of saying, well, look, the US wants us to be violent. They're like, yeah. they're like mm. deliberately, they're involved in trafficking the guns to us. They're watching this happen. So, yeah, it cuts, it cuts, you know, all kinds of ways. Well, the thing is, you don't have to be anti-gun to be anti-trafficking guns to Mexican yeah, drug yeah. lords. Yeah. You, can, yeah. you can be pro-gun as well, mm. but also want them to mm. be legally controlled and none of this to happen, right? Yeah, ex exactly. And I interviewed one um, confidential informant who was a gun seller, and he was that. He was, he was a gun seller, and he was saying, I don't want these guns going to cartels. And he was actually ended up, you know, being, you know, with a hidden recorder, um, taping conversations with, 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 with cartel affiliates. And then at the end, he was like, none of this came to anything. I was just doing this uh, and none of this came to anything. And, you know, and then he was making money. I mean, he was making money, both getting paid by the government to be a confidential informant and making money from the gun sales. Just sounds like a broken system, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say we've got a zombie war on drugs. You know, it's a broken system. Isn't it because we've kind of admitted that there is no solution to this problem, really? Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, politics is broken and, and, you know, we've got to try and, you know, bring the conversation on. Now, like, I think a lot of people now, probably most of you, as I'd imagine, would be in favour of legalising marijuana, as it's mm. a guess. Um, when, but when you get to cocaine, some you know, people get like, you know, you know or, or someone's, you know, suffering or, yeah. or people like seeing like, like in the US now, you know, they've got loads of homeless people on the streets who are taking drugs. So you think, well, decriminalisation isn't working there because we're just allowing them to be doing, you know, like just, just sitting there taking drugs on the streets. Um, what are we going to do about them? You know, these people need help, a lot of them. But also I think, you know, you've got another discussion about law enforcement. So I think on the one side, I think we need drug policy reform. On the other side, we do need to take law enforcement very seriously in terms of stopping antisocial crime. And antisocial crime, I mean, in, in, in Latin America, I mean, violently antisocial disappearances, uh, I mean, uh, rapes, uh, and, and, and I mean, I, there, I mean, there's a, there's a very um, aggressive feminist movement in, in, in Mexico, in Latin America, but there they've got these grievances of like, you know, horrific, you know, every day you see a woman's being raped and murdered and their body left. Uh, I interviewed one woman who was, this is going down to Central America, and she was gang raped by the members of the MS-13 gang. And it was kind of used, used as a weapon of, of conflict, of violence against people. So these kind of, kind of antisocial crimes and violence and in poor communities are the ones that suffer most from this um, everywhere. We are, and we need to take this stuff very, very seriously and say, how do we have law enforcement to that? At the same time as saying, actually on drug issue itself, we need to rethink this and just locking everyone up for this or just you know, allowing an illegal black market in drugs, which generates money, which gives an incentive for people to have guns and, and, and fight over this. You know, this is not working. Do you think part of the solution could be, though, Jörn, is that, look, the, we've, all our governments have spent a phenomenal amount of money on COVID, and they're looking around, they think, right, we need to regenerate it. You know, we need to regenerate. We need to think of ways to make more money. Let's be fair, if you want to monetize something, marijuana is the best way to do it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you've seen um, big incomes you know, being generated in cities that have legalized marijuana um, and a lot of people in that business. And if it did happen in the UK, I'm sure like, you, know, you get some of the same old um, you know, networks soon jumping into that. And, you know, Weatherspoons. You know, yeah, Weatherspoons <laughs> or you know, the friends of Boris Johnson or whatever yeah. you know, in business, you know, who like jumping into another. You know, it'd be a big thing to invest in if it's only started like opening like, you know, marijuana dispensaries around the UK. Um, sure, I mean, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of money in this, absolutely. I mean, if you've got um, an industry that's, I mean, again, the, the, these numbers are pure estimates or guesstimates, but, you know, there was a UN thing talking about $300 billion globally. And that's $300 billion, you know, governments can tax or, or whatever. No, no, not all of it. You know, so say, you know, there's some drugs maybe we can... I mean, I don't know if heroin, you can ever allow people to go to the shop and buy heroin. But the thing is, this, the, the, this conversation doesn't need to be had in this way, does it? Because yeah. when we talk about decriminalizing things, let's say, yeah. we're not saying you can go into a pharmacy and buy a kilo of heroin. Mm. What we're saying is if you, if you are a user of heroin, instead of putting you in prison, yeah. uh, we 
get, we make sure you get the treatment that you need, which is rehab, which is psychological help to deal with your underlying issues. I don't think anyone's advocating that these really, really damaging drugs like cocaine, heroin, mm. etc., should just be freely available, at a, at a, you know, just for, to whoever wants them. I think there's got to be some nuance in the conversation. You, I think marijuana is something you could probably legalize, but other drugs maybe just decriminalize. They've done that in Portugal, I think in, in Switzerland to some extent with heroin as well. There's places in the world that have found a way of doing this. It doesn't have to be like free-for-all, you know. Well, yeah, but there still leaves a problem though because when you, um, if you decriminalize heroin, so, so we decriminalize heroin in the UK, um, and let's say people spend, and just, just, just out, you know, like whatever, a billion pounds on heroin. So they're no, no longer going to arrest people who are like, um, who are just having this, being caught with the bit because they're heroin users. But it's still going to be a black market illegal trade providing them. Mm. Yeah. So you still then got the gangs, you know, moving the heroin and making money from it and having the violence. And you've still got the cartels or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. here a lot of heroin comes from, say, Turkey. But I think in Switzerland, organized crime. what they do, though, is they give them the heroin. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, so that's another step. So that's another thing you, you, we could look at where you have government programs and you have things like methadone as right. well. There's other, there's also other like substitutes. Yeah. So we're like expanding those kind of programs. Now, again, it's, it's, it's still difficult when you get into this because you have, you know, you might have somebody who's like, get some, you know, scripts, you know, from the government. Right. Um, and then sells those. And I used to be, remember, you know, back when I was, you know, in, in the eighties, early nineties, remember people doing that, like get scripts for pills, call them like jellies or something, some like pills. And then like, so they're like reselling them on the street and stuff. So it's difficult as well. Um, but I think some of these, we have to, you know, have to look at this stuff. We have to try and find ways. I think one way to see this in a lot of problems is rather than, you know, these absolutist things of saying, uh, and like, you know, which Richard Nixon, Nixon, when he began the war on drugs, said, we will banish heroin from American life. We're not going to get rid of it completely, but we've got to reduce the harm, reduce the damage. So if the illegal drug money right now is, you know, we have $150 billion in the United States, if you can reduce that by half, then that's $75 billion less going to organized crime. Um, if you can reduce it by two thirds. So if you can try and see a reduction in this and reduce the number of people dying of, of overdoses, rather than saying we're gonna get, gonna get rid of this problem completely. Mm. Uh, yeah, we've got a few minutes left. So it, obviously whenever you talk about this issue, it, it's not a positive conversation, just <laughs> given the nature of what we're talking about here, right? But do you think there's um, any reason to be positive? Any any reason for optimism around this issue? Do you think there's any light at the end of the tunnel here, or do you think this is just an issue that's not going to get better in the foreseeable? Um, yeah, I, I try and be optimistic and not really pessimistic about stuff. I don't I don't like the idea of, uh, of of pessimistic views on the world and stuff. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of things driving the particular violence in Mexico. So it's not. The drugs are, in a way, you know, you could talk about Mexico as being, rather than the Mexican war on drugs, the Mexican drug war, mm. which is a war being partly financed by drugs. You know, you know they're, they're financing an armed conflict. And maybe it's going to last, you know, a few years more and finally kind of calm, calm down. And, and it's also about finding governability, finding police forces that can work in that, which I think is a bigger issue as well across the world is like how you have you know, how you create law enforcement that works. A lot of countries don't have functional law enforcement. Um, you know, it's something else we, you know, we can easily take for granted. And there's a lot of problems with law enforcement in the UK, but it's a hell of a lot better than many, many countries. And, you know, the, the levels of violence here are, are better. But like, a po if you look at a positive solution or positive take on this, I mean, yeah, I mean, public opinion has changed massively on this issue. Like generation wise, things have changed. So, you know, people started taking drugs in a really big way, I think, in the West from the 60s onwards. That was when it kind of really blew up. When I was growing up in the 80s, there was all just drugs were already everywhere. Uh, so we're growing up around drugs then. Um, and probably the same for, for you know, the new generation now. They've grown up, I think, maybe even less drug taking yeah. now than there was yeah. in, in the 80s, 90s. I don't, you know, it's, it's, I don't know exactly. It's hard to know. So you get more used to it and then you get like less, you know, now it's kind of, if people often people who are the most scared about drugs and the kind of old idea of the kind of, you know, the old um, war on drug stuff or the real fear. Um, there was a, a film from the 1930s in the States, 
94 is called Reefer Madness. Yeah, I've seen it. It's yeah. a classic. I watched it when I was high. Yeah, <laughs> it is a classic. And they're like, yeah, these people yeah. like these guys in a suit and tie, and he smokes marijuana, and you know, smokes some weed, and he's just yeah. you know, losing it. Um, but now th those have changed. So I think I think we've got the, the the change in a big change in public opinion. It's about I think now it's about taking that and making that to actual change in policies. Jan, it's been a wonderful, wonderful interview. Uh, before we do our questions for locals, the last question we always ask is, uh, what's the one thing we're not talking about but we really should be? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I tried to think of this before. To me, it was hard work. Trying to think Don't give it, away the secrets yeah. of the game. It's meant to be yeah. off the cuff. Yeah, I know, off the cuff. Okay, I was trying to think about this. But anyway, the um, it's almost like everything's being talked about. I think, but I think one issue which is um, um, talked about but I think could come more, and I see this coming back to England, is the kind of over-digitalization of everything. Uh, I think the way, particularly England, has become such a digital society, um, and it's in some parts of life where we don't need it. Um, you know, like going to a pub and having to go on an app to order a drink instead of being able to go to a bar. And I understand the health stuff there, but like this idea that everything's online, that every bank has to like close down its branches, that you can't, you know, talk to a doctor anymore. You have to go like and send emails. I think this is fracturing society more. Um, I think one of the big challenges now is, um, I mean, it's also for all of us, you know, how we try and get a balance between digital life and, you know, and real life and really seeing people and stuff. And I think that's one of the things we need to talk about more. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah, and, uh, and for those of you watching, we're going to ask some questions. In fact, your questions from locals. So join locals, check out our page there, and you'll be able to submit questions for our future guests and read the answers. Uh, but yeah, and in the meantime, thank you for coming on. Blood, Gun, Money is your latest book. Everyone should get it, of course. I look forward to reading your back catalogue as well, because it's just it's, this is an issue I really find very interesting. Um, and thank you for coming on the show. Where should people go to check out your work and follow the, the latest in what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So I've got a weird name, so it's easy to find. Uh, I-O-A-N, first name, and Grillo, G-R-I-L-L-O. So it's just, just you can just search for that. But you can see I've got a website, yohangrillo.com. I'm on Twitter um, some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> not, not too much, talking about the digital thing. Uh, but you can see that. A bit of stuff on YouTube as well you, you can check out. Um, uh, and you can see me have uh, in a bunch of, of media uh, outlets that have my stories as well. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on, man. And thank you all for watching. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode. And they always go out episodes and raw shows, 7 p.m. UK time, Tuesday to Sunday, or 2 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Standard Time. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below.